Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Rebecca Traster, a writer at large for New York Magazine and the author of the books All the Single Ladies and Big Girls Don't Cry. Her story in the current issue of New York is about the wave of sexual harassment and assault allegations that have roiled industries as varied as politics, journalism, and Hollywood. Rebecca Traster, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be here and nice to talk to you, Isaac. So um, I wanted to talk about uh, your story in in, uh, in New York Magazine. One of the things you said in the story or you say in the story is that ever since this dam has kind of been breaking, um, especially after the Weinstein scandal, that you've been getting more and more people reaching out to you and just sharing these awful stories. Um, is this just because you're a journalist who writes about this stuff? What, what do you or is it is it people you know? What can you tell me a little bit about that process? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. So the the basic thing is because I'm a journalist who writes about um, I'm a feminist journalist. So there's that level of like, oh, here's a person who has written about for years in in various from various perspectives and who's uh, sometimes goes on television and talks about things like harassment and sexual assault. I obviously it's something I wrote and talked about a lot last year with regard to Donald Trump. It's, you know, it's a topic I've written about a lot in the past. And then the other more specific thing is that the day the New York Times broke the very first Harvey Weinstein story, I very quickly um, wrote a piece that was about my own experience with Weinstein. And it wasn't an experience of sexual assault or harassment. It was um, a story about a very loud and profane altercation I'd had with him when I was a young reporter and the ways that that experience had um, sort of opened up this whole other realm of stories to me and how I'd watched this, the story of his sexual abuses um, go unreported for so many years and talking about power and how it works and the power to suppress a story. And because I wrote that first person account, um, I think it got me engaged in the conversation, the public conversation that was happening. So I think that was the more direct thing that led people to start to write to me. But it has been um, it's it's been a startling experience. Even today, I've been sitting at my computer trying to respond to people who've sent in more of their well, so, tales. Yeah. And no, most most of them I don't know. Most of them are people who found my email address on the internet, or they're writing through my author website. You know, um, and it's they're telling really harrowing stories. And do you get a sense from these emails? I mean, uh, obviously, it can be more than one thing, but that this is about you wanting to write them wanting you to write something. Is it about they just want to share their experience with who they hope will be a sympathetic ear? Is it like what what exactly how do you interpret it? Well, it is a mix. Um, so there are, you know, there are a few who say, oh, I want you to do this story. And that's a whole separate conversation about what is now considered reportable and what isn't. Um, But I think it's a weird um, mix of impulses because most of the people who are writing me are not writing wanting to go on the record or wanting, you know, exactly precisely wanting to have the person they feel did this to them exposed and brought down. But I do think they want, first of all, they want to get their stories out. This is my impression. They want to tell someone. There's a kind of, and I've spoken to a number of people about this and had some correspondence about it. There's something about having had a story, which for many people are stories that have been bottled up inside for huge portions of their lifetimes. Um, There's something about 
getting it out into the open, telling someone. Maybe they've told people in their lives before, but also telling someone as part of this moment of revelation, understanding that the thing that happened to you um, doesn't isolate you and set you apart, that you're part of um, part of what's being revealed about how power abuses have been so prevalent in the world. So there's that. Um, and then I think more broadly, it's like, there are also people who tell me about a specific figure, perhaps a, somebody whose name I'd recognize um, in any realm, really. And I sort of get the sense that they're wondering, have I heard about another, have I heard from another person who's identified right. the same well, guy? It's almost, all, it's always a guy. Shocking. So shocking. Um, yeah. and, and in some cases it has, and in some cases I have, there were days, especially after the Weinstein thing, where I was getting emails from people who gave no indication that they knew each other or had any relationship to each other who were telling me stories about the well, same I, guy. I, yeah, no, I mean, it's interesting also because if you look at kind of the – if you look at the worlds that this has affected most, which I would probably say are politics, journalism, and Hollywood, um, they're all fields where – People have one where where kind of the the bad actors are known, no pun intended, but that they're known. Mm -hmm. And two, where yeah. the people making the accusations are either somewhat well known or have access to journalists who can write about this. And it makes you think yes. not, uh, about yeah. this as a class thing in the sense that there are a lot of women who are in jobs where this is not the case, probably paid less on the whole. And not only do they not have anyone to maybe talk to in their lives, I mean, who knows about that, but they... They're, it's much harder for them to get their story out. It's much harder for them to get their story out sort of in an infrastructure sense. Like, like what is the degree of separation between them and uh, the press? What is the, you know, what are the access points to get to people in the media? There's that. But there's also, this is a class story in part because it's also about security and stability. So this is happening in fields right now where, yes, the, the accused perpetrators are themselves well-known, and therefore there's an editorial argument to be made about, oh, readers will recognize who they are and they'll read with interest and everything. Um, but it's also true that the, that the people who are in their fields, who've gotten close enough to experience abuse, are in by definition, kind of high-paying fields. Even the sense of a whisper network itself um, sort of involves a degree of safety net that you have a network of colleagues or of friends who you would whisper to to begin with. It leaves out all kinds of people who, first of all, might not have felt as socially connected, but then entire fields where there's no economic security, where wages are low, where there's no opportunity for another job, where there's no cushion, where if you face retribution or blowback from the boss or the colleague that you're accusing, you're going to have any sense of economic security. And those, of course, are the professions also where the bosses aren't themselves celebrities, where they are store and restaurant managers and you're you're the person who is your boss at the warehouse where you pack boxes um, or at the factory. Um, and, and those are the professions where we're not hearing stories, both, as you say, because the potential perpetrators aren't people who are household names for us, but also because the people who would be making the allegations have very little stability or sense of safety from which to make those accusations. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I want to ask, we just had the one year anniversary of Trump's uh, election victory. And I, you know, one of the one of the things that I think is overhanging all of this is the fact that the man in charge of the country has been credibly accused by, I think, over 15 women of sexual misconduct. And. You know, I'm wondering, I guess this is a two-part question. The first is how you think his role as president is playing into the kind of societal urge to get this stuff out there. And two, the degree to which if this had all happened a year ago, uh, if it would have, if you think had an effect on the election or if that's something you've been thinking about, because I know you, you've written a lot about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. So it did happen a year ago. This is the thing we forget. This, this, what now, now this has grown so much that I think we can say a smaller version happened a year ago, but certainly the biggest version of it at that point to date in my life happened one year and change ago after the release of the Access Hollywood tape in which Donald Trump brags about how you can just grab women by the pussy, whether or not they want you to, which is assault. Okay. After that tape. I believe it's more than 20 women came forward on the record, including the journalist from People magazine who told of how she was writing a story about him and he kissed her against his will, stuck his tongue in her mouth. The woman who said that he assaulted her on an airplane, groped her with his octopus arms. We barely remember this, right? But at the time, it was on the cover of the New York Times. It was front page news and there were hashtag campaigns. There was the Twitter campaign where everybody, where I, I can't remember how many women, hundreds of thousands of women, maybe more than a million women, um, contributed their stories of the first time that they were assaulted or harassed. This felt explosive. I remember friends at the time telling me stories of how, and, and with the election around the corner and what was then, we were told the likelihood that that Hillary Clinton would be elected and also the sense of power that we have. This was pussy grabs back on, on election day. Pussy will grab back, right? And there was a sense there was something we could do about it. Um, and instead, what happened was that his election became one of the bigger metaphors for what actually has happened on a million small levels in all of our work lives, which is the crap guy who groped you or propositioned you or retaliated against you at the workplace um, got the bigger job. And it didn't even matter that you'd filed the complaint or that you'd told your friends or that you'd confronted him or whatever you did. It didn't matter. He got promoted. That guy got the job. And in fact, the the popular vote thing, I think, matters here because there was this sense like we can vote against him and three million more people voted for his opponent and he still got the job. It was like the perfect example of how the systems align Right. And it, I've written I've written this in the past. It's not just that the systems align, literally a system that was invented, the Electoral College, to preserve the power, the, the ability of of people to enact power abuses. And that was how the Electoral College was divine, was uh developed to preserve the power of slave states over non-slave states actually worked, you know, to override the Democratic popular vote. And I think that that metaphorical thing that happened 
is responsible for the wildness of this moment, the kind of out, because there's something scary and sort of wild westy about this. This is not happening through typical channels. You know, there is stuff that's being reported in the media, but there are also sort of anonymous lists being compiled. There's a kind of sense that this thing could go out of control and off the rails at any moment. But I think part of it is because of the experience of a year ago where it was like, look, all of our, all the things that we were told we were supposed to do don't work. So we're just going to go in a million different crazy directions because the rage is that hot at this point. Have you had people say that to you directly or this is kind of your analysis of what's going on? It's an, it's that, an interesting theory. Have, have I had, well, I don't know that I've ever, I've, I don't know that anybody has said to me that has made that connection like, oh, I'm this yeah. mad because of the election of Donald Trump. There are people who, sure, actually there are people, of course, who say I'm so angry and it's Trump, 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 Trump is making so many people so angry. It's more my observation about the kind of radical, raw wildness of this moment, which as a feminist journalist, I've never seen anything this sort of electric and dangerous feeling. One last question about about the election last year is that there's been some conversation recently about Bill Clinton and the allegations against him, which include Mm -hmm. sexual harassment and even rape. And um, this was something that Donald Trump himself uh, brought up in the campaign. And I, it also seems like we're at a moment where uh, a lot of feminists and a lot of people who voted for or supported Bill Clinton are kind of reexamining the accusations against him. Uh, I, I guess, I mean, you, you can tell me what you think about that, but I'm also interested in what you think, um, looking back a year later, what, if anything, Hillary Clinton should or shouldn't have had to answer about Bill Clinton's behavior? Right. So my answer to that, actually, I, I absolutely think that we were always going to get back around to evaluating Bill Clinton, right? Um, and I think it's a necessary feminist conversation to have. It's not easy. They're the most credible rape claim against Bill Clinton is by Juanita Broderick. And there's a great story by Katie Baker that was published last year during the election about Juanita Broderick. They're inc- I I don't know. You know, Michelle Goldberg published a really great piece um, this week saying, I believe Juanita. I don't know if I believe Juanita. I absolutely don't know. And I've never known the answer. But I certainly don't not believe Juanita, right? And even if you take the rape claim out of it, something that was never really wrestled with appropriately by the left and by feminists during Bill Clinton's Uh, impeachment and the Starr investigation and the Monica Lewinsky story. And it wasn't wrestled with. There's reasons you can go back and trace it. It's because, in fact, like it was a partisan motivated attempt. The investigation itself was a partisan motivated attempt to to take Bill Clinton out of power. And that's true. And there were so many on the on the left, the center left, (laughs) um, who were anxious to defend Bill Clinton on those grounds. Um, And that included feminists who were also relieved after 12 years of Republican presidential power and the and the sort of unification of Republican politics with the with the religious right to have a guy who supported reproductive freedom, who appointed Ruth Bader Ginsburg to the Supreme Court. Um, They were anxious to defend him. But what really got lost was the analysis of even the relationship with Monica Lewinsky which both of them have claimed was consensual and Monica Lewinsky to this day says is consensual. Um, however, was an obvious well, abuse of power that certainly fell under the rubric of sexual harassment. And we didn't have that conversation. However, the time that our, our, the, we now have tools and lenses and, and, um, sort of, I think of a, a 
rebirth of feminism that would be anxious to go back and take that apart. But the moment where it was slightly pushed on us was last year when Hillary Clinton was the candidate for president. And one thing that I think very firmly is that it's not Hillary Clinton who should be answering the questions about Bill's misdeeds, nor is it she who should have paid the political price. And a point that Michelle Goldberg makes in her piece today and that I wholeheartedly agree with is that to some degree she did pay the price because the lingering questions about Bill um, sort of made it more difficult for her to assemble a feminist coalition that should have been behind her, especially as the opponent to Donald Trump. And I think, and she also, of course, paid in other ways, like the debate where he brought in Bill's accusers. And it, I think um, that's emblematic of a lot that happened to Hillary Clinton, which is she was handed the bill. <laughs> she was handed the check and asked to pay up for errors of her party, her husband, and the left that occurred in the 1990s, during which her role was as wife, not as elected official. And that is one of the areas in which she was asked to pay the check for Bill's behavior when it was her in the moment that she was about to get political power. I don't disagree with any of that, except I would just say that um, when men are accused of sexual misconduct and women, their wives, play the role of offering them credibility after those accusations, I totally understand how awful a position that is to be put in. But if these men really are committing misconduct and the women are playing the role of giving them some credibility, that seems a legitimate thing to criticize them for. Yeah, I guess I see that the because I've I mean, this this comes out of my own work about sort of marriage mm. and the dependency relationship and how marriage has existed in the past. I see that argument as a way of, again, getting implicating women in the misdeeds of their husbands. There are huge tolls to be paid if you're a wife who doesn't stand by her husband. Um, there are, to and that's not to say I don't, I have no idea, like on a purely personal individual level, none, you know, what Hillary Clinton or any wife thinks of any given husband's infidelities, extramarital, or abuses. I mean, there is one record that I know of, of her having a, of Hillary having a conversation with a friend about Monica Lewinsky, in which she says it was consensual. Like, it's crossed her mind that she needs to think about, was this relationship consensual? Um, so, of course, yes, there is that. And do I wish that Hillary Clinton had, had denounced the power abuses of the relationship with Monica Lewinsky? Yes. I don't, again, right. the one I did Broadway, Broadway case is so muddy that I'm not sure. But I do think that structurally wives have been, it's not just their choice always. Um, there are all kinds of social, economic, historic factors that put wives, especially in the case of Hillary Clinton, wives who are married to the president of the United States, who's also trying to be taken down by the opposing party, where, you know, it's too complicated to hang it on her, is what I'm saying. That doesn't mean you can't be critical of how she behaved. I wish she'd done things differently, too. But I also think that the expectation that wives play certain roles is re a really complicated one. Bill Cosby's wife would probably be the better example, who's spent time 
basically smearing the women who've accused her husband of things. I wrote I wrote a column about Camille Cosby and Hillary Clinton last year when that was and both of them and their experiences and how that they get stuck with that. Um, I would defend both of them, actually, while not necessarily thinking, oh, okay. you know, I, I would I would t- I, I, not defend. I don't I'm not crazy about Camille Cosby. But I also think that that position, the historic position of a wife is a really untenable one. Um, and I don't think you can think about wives' relationships to husbands um, without sort of looking at what marriage has, um, what the way that marriage has disempowered women to begin with, including Camille Cosby, even women who have money, who have careers, Hillary Clinton has career, has a power. But the sort of the dependency relationships of marriage make those questions really sticky in ways that I think it's hard to assess from the outside. I want to uh, I want to ask you a little bit about the media. Um, you write in this piece a little bit about the New Republic, which is a place that I should tell people that we both we overlapped. We were working in different offices, but we overlapped at the New Republic. And um, the reason you talk about the New Republic partially in this piece is because Leon Weaseltier, who was the literary editor of the magazine, um, what has uh, lost his new magazine, which he was starting and been fired from the Brookings Institute in the Atlantic, where he was on the masthead for um, allegations of sexual harassment and uh, forcibly kissing uh, a former New Republic staffer. And you you write about that there. And, and so I was um, I just wanted that as a since since we both were both on staff, I wanted to say that. But I also wanted to ask you um, one of the things I don't think was directly connected to Leon losing his positions was this shitty media men list, it's been called, where this was sort of a, I guess you'd call it a whisper network that became an Excel spreadsheet and uh, mm-hmm. listed about... Right. That's a dangerous transition, by the way. The whisper network to spreadsheet is a very well, then, dangerous let me, Okay, well, that's move. a good, that's a good, uh, that's a good uh, transition. I mean, what, what did you make of when you heard that uh, men were appearing on this spreadsheet and sort of listing their names, where they worked, and what they were accused of doing anonymously. Um, What did you think about that? Well, I mean, I I have completely mixed and contradictory feelings about that list. Um, The negative probably came first. It, I think it's a very dangerous document. Um, The charges on there are a huge range. Now, somebody recently defended it to me by saying, yeah, but it only says it's a shitty men list. It doesn't say everybody on here is a criminal, right? And I was like, oh, that's a reasonable point. Um, but the range the range in there and the sort of collapse of categories between men who are named and anonymously accused of like assault and rape and also men who are named and they're sort of like he slides into your DMs and awkward work lunches. And it's like, whoa, there is a very wide gulf between violent assault and the awkward work lunch, right? So I was worried about the collapse of categories. The idea, um, I I was also immediately worried about the peril to feminism itself and to this conversation. Because Um, A list like that, I'm acutely aware every second that this has been happening, I am acutely aware of the fact that there's going to be a backlash any second and that women, the power dynamics will be reversed. The women will be seen as the aggressors doing harm to men and the men will be vulnerable to the women, right? That's exactly what happens in in all kinds of circumstances. This is why Black Lives Matter, um, you know, a movement that resists state enforced violence against black men. Uh, 
that's why people who want to take issue with Black Lives Matter talk about them as, you know, uh, violent mobs, right? It's because whoever is protesting a power abuse, the way to to undo that is to recast the the group with less power as the aggressor. And that will happen here. And that list was a very, very easy way in which it was going to happen. I also worried that the people who made it were going to be quickly identifiable because it was a very esoteric list. There were one of the top reactions I heard from people were like, what about that guy? He's not on it. I mean, it was like, you'd looked at it and you thought of all the men you knew in our profession who you thought should be on that list, but weren't. Um, I just thought, and I'm, I'm very, I'm feel free to uh, say names on this podcast. Yeah, right. Sure. <laughs> um, the other thing is, I care very much about, um, you know, sort of civil rights and criminal procedure and the presumption of innocence and those things matter to me. I am married to a criminal defense attorney, a public defender. Um, you know, I, I understand there are things, are such things as false accusations, uh, you know, about every kind of crime, including rape and assault and harassment. Um, so uh, all those were my negative reactions. Like this is a dangerous document. It is dangerous both to the men who are named on it, um, or who might get added to it. It is also dangerous for not only the women who made it, but for other women who are trying to have this conversation. It seems like you're get ready, getting ready to say but. Well, I would say and. and okay? okay. So at the same time that I feel all those things, I also was fascinated by its creation. Because I saw it, I think I'm writing a book about women and anger in politics and social change. And to me, it was such a dangerous sort of risky thing to do that it was symptomatic to me of a rage that was bubbling over. And that was fascinating to me and also kind of awe-inspiring, okay? And so I say and because this doesn't contradict my negative feelings. It is something I felt simultaneously, which was, and I've, I've written this since, there is something about this kind of behavior, this like extremely bad idea, putting all your names in a Google Doc and then sending it around uh, in a way that's going to be weaponized by the right, you know, because a lot of those guys are left wing guys or progressive journalists. Um, but the desperation of that speaks to the intensity of the fury that so many people are feeling. And that to me is very powerful. Um, and and it's almost like I sort of stood back and was like, well, shit, that is some radical feminism right there. I mean, this is, I, I, I'm 42 years old. I was born in 1975. I have never lived through a period in which truly radical feminism, like dangerous shit, <laughs> um, was something that was part of the, even the feminism that has been sort of rebirthed over the past decade or so. Um, and there was kind of just, I had a, I'm a little awestruck by the sheer sort of fuck it, we're going to do this um, quality of the anger. And that list was symptomatic of it. So I thought, and I, and I don't think that's a negative feeling. In some ways, I think it's a I'm interested. It's an interested feeling. And then the other thing is, I think it has been that list was symptomatic of what was going to happen more broadly. I didn't know at the time of the Weinstein piece, which is about when there was the media shitty media men list, that there would be so many more stories. I didn't know the news cycle would continue. I didn't know how many more public men were going to be named, how many more women were going to go on the record. But I now see that shitty men list as um, what should have been a clue 
that this was not going to recede as quickly as I initially thought that it might, um, that this was going to be a rolling expression of anger and resistance to this kind of behavior. So I, all my feelings about the list are not negative. Some of them are positive. The thing you, about the political backlash you mentioned was interesting. And I, I just, when I've been talking to people, especially people I would say over 55, not to smear everybody in a broad brush, mm-hmm. um, I've noticed an incredible resistance and anxiety about this, about mm-hmm. this sort, this change sweeping society, even from people, men especially, who are liberal. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's it's definitely made me anxious about what political backlash there might be to this sort of broad feeling that, um, you know, men's power is uh, going to be circumscribed in some way mm-hmm. because, you know, this kind of shit can't go on. Anyway, yeah, it's I a think- worrying... Yeah. It's very worrying to me. I'm just waiting for it. I think it's going to be really bad. And I think, I mean, it's going to be bad in ways that could conceivably be violent. I mean, I have all kinds of nightmares about the form that the backlash is going to take. But there is one thing that I think about, and I I nod to this in my piece, um, which is that the idea that there's going to be a backlash, and and there will be, I'm not really imagining an alternate universe, right? But, but the reason there's a backlash is because white men still have power. And so there will be resistance from that, those power holders combined with the various people who want to support that kind of power, which as we know, you know, that includes lots of white women and, you know, older people who came of age in a different world. And there'll be a way, there are lots of us who want to return to the norm, which ultimately that norm ultimately adheres around the power structures and ability to abuse power that we've always known. And that is fundamentally a white patriarchy, right? So there's that. And that's how we know there'll be a backlash because there, it, we still live in a white patriarchy. And so there will still be the power and then the incentives laid out for people to come and quell this. But if the rage is so intense right now, and I, I noted this about the the sort of special elections from last week, um, where you saw so many women who were like, nope, I'm running for office. And they beat the white guys who'd held the office, you know, and who'd written the transphobic bathroom bills. Janica Rome beat right, the right. white guy. And, you know, there is this, there, there's the future glimmer of hope <laughs> that a backlash could be forestalled or that we won't always live in this world where there's an automatic punishing backlash. If we actually someday are able to challenge and change the power structure. Um, and so I'm not saying that's that's now. We still live in a white patriarchy. <laughs> Donald Trump is our president. He's stacking courts um, and, not, and, and agencies. Um, it, it's going to be brutal what's going to happen in the wake of this. But I do think that that some of the persistence and the drive of of women and some men to keep this conversation going and to push the backlash off shows us that down the road, I don't know, next year, 10 years, 100 years from now, we could get closer to a universe where the white patriarchy is actually is fundamentally challenged and changed. Well- you can come back on the podcast in uh, 2117 and talk about how <laughs> things have improved. Um, Rebecca Traster, your article, I don't need to tell you this, but the article is in the current issue of New York Magazine. Thank you for coming on, I have to ask. Thank you so much, Isaac. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling, and our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, please email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. 
We had some great feedback on our Ta-Nehisi Coates interview from last week, which you can listen to, so please keep the feedback coming. If you're looking for more to listen to from Slate, please check out Mom and Dad Are Fighting, a podcast for parents. It's hosted by my friend Gabe Roth, Rebecca Lavoie, and Carvel Wallace, and they tackle all aspects of parenting, from toddlers to teens, and share their own parenting triumphs and failures. Subscribe to Mom and Dad Are Fighting at slate.com slash momanddad. <laughs>